0: Hello and welcome to Transfusion's Monthly Podcast. I am your host, Yara Park. In today's episode, we'll be speaking with Drs. Nicholas Carr and Robert Christensen, who will be discussing their recent work, fetal-maternal Hemorrhage, Evidence from a Multi-Hospital Healthcare System that Up to 40% of Severe Cases are Missed. Welcome, Dr. Carr and Dr. Christensen. Thank you for joining us. Dr. Carr, would you please introduce yourself?
1: Sure. Thank you, Yara, for having us. Uh, my name is Nick Carr. I'm an attending neonatologist with the University of Utah and also work with the Intermountain Healthcare System. Uh, I serve in the associate medical director role for Primary Children's Hospital, which is a level four NICU in the, the Utah region.
2: And then I'm one of the uh, co-investigators on that project.
0: Thank you. And Dr. Christensen, can you introduce yourself?
2: Yes. <clears throat> and first, I want to thank you, Yara, and, and the uh, editors, and uh, of Transfusion for selecting this paper for this podcast. And I want to thank you, Yara, for moderating this for us. I'm, I'm Robert Christensen. I am a neonatal hematologist. I did fellowships in, in neonatology and in hematology. And my work has been exclusively focused on the hematologic problems of newborn babies. And fetal maternal hemorrhage is one such problem.
0: So first, can you summarize your study for our listeners?
2: Yeah, Nick, do you want to do that? Yeah, absolutely.
1: So this represents a follow-up of a study that was published by the Intermountain Group in 2013, um, trying to determine what the incidence was for fetal maternal hemorrhage. Uh, Fetal maternal hemorrhage, uh, for those who are unaware, can be a a cause of catastrophic anemia um, and hemorrhagic shock for neonates um, in the setting of significant blood loss that occurs from the fetus into the maternal circulation. This is a distinct entity from other types of placental abruption or um, hemolytic disease of the newborn, and um, we suspected uh, that this was probably something that was being missed based off of the reported incidents that's been published in the literature, as well as the um, numerous case reports, but not overall large-scale studies that were looking into this uh, topic. In 2013, our group uh, published an incidence identifying 1 in 9,000 causes of uh, fetal maternal hemorrhage. However, during a case review across the 21 uh, medical centers, uh, we found that only one baby had died from fetal maternal hemorrhage. And fetal maternal hemorrhage being a known cause of stillbirth and uh, neonatal demise, uh, we figured that we were probably missing some of the cases of fetal maternal hemorrhage and that there was probably a better opportunity to go through our electronic medical record and uh, other resources we had available to see, was it not being diagnosed? Was there false negatives for confirmatory testing? And overall, could we do a better job of identifying fetal maternal hemorrhage early and then managing it as a neonatal uh, program? And what did you find?
2: Before we answer that question Yara, let me just add one thing to what Nick said, and that is I want to 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 pay some respect to the Stillbirth Collaborative Research Network uh, for kind of tipping us off to the idea that we were likely missing cases of severe fetal maternal hemorrhage in babies who died within the first day after birth. What what this research network is, the NICHD supports five academic centers in the U.S. basically to try to figure out why babies are uh, stillborn. So focusing on fetal deaths in utero after 20 weeks gestation. Once this group started looking into it, I think many of us were surprised to see fetal maternal hemorrhage was one of the more common identifiable causes of stillbirths. And if large numbers of babies are dying of stillbirth from maternal fetal hemorrhage, surely we must be missing early deaths in the NICU due to fetal maternal hemorrhage. And that was one of the hypotheses that Nick and I discussed when we set out to do this um, 10-year chart review.
0: Thank you. That's good to have the backstory. That's actually one of my questions, so you beat me to it. Okay. So uh, now do you want to discuss what you found when you did the review?
1: So absolutely. Yes. Um, we, oh, sorry, go ahead, Dr. Christensen.
2: Well, let me just start and then you can pick up. We, we found basically two things. Uh, the first thing is our case assessment methods uh, revealed 25 babies during this 10-year period that undoubtedly had fetal maternal hemorrhage that adversely affected the neonates causing anemia at birth. That's, and then we, we described those 25 babies. That was one part of the study. But I think the thing that Nick and I were most interested in is searching for babies where they very likely had a missed diagnosis of fetal maternal hemorrhage. These would be babies who were born anemic, required early emergent transfusions, but no one ever came up with a decent explanation as to why. And so we searched for babies who had that scenario, who had early anemia, early transfusions, but did not have maternal blood drawn to test for fetal maternal hemorrhage. And basically, after some exhaustive chart reviews, we came up with 17 who we are quite convinced but cannot prove had fetal maternal hemorrhage that was missed. And of those, eight of the 17 died. And so, so our report ends up being 25 babies with proven fetal maternal hemorrhage plus 17 that we think were missed. And I
1: think the add-in to add into this is that one of the strengths of this study and the strengths of our population is that going back and looking at the Intermountain Medical System, over a 10-year epoch, we were able to review close to 300,000 births. Um, with that, we were able to identify with the confirmatory testing for either kleihauer or, or flow cytometry, 1,375 moms that had been tested with for fetal maternal hemorrhage, and identifying 14% of those were positive. And we felt like that going through and identifying 17 additional cases where we were very convinced that fetal maternal hemorrhage was a cause of that severe neonatal anemia and um, compromise, that this would highlight that there is still a gap in identifying fetal maternal hemorrhage. Um, And it's a relatively low occurrence, but high acuity event And that um, targeted education, universal screening for hemoglobin at cord blood or postnatally would identify these patients and probably help us prevent some of the mortality associated of the misdiagnosis.
0: You mentioned your Intermountain Health System. So can you explain that a little bit? Because I wasn't familiar with it, honestly, until we started talking about this paper on the committee. And it sounds like a very interesting collaboration.
2: Yes. Intermountain Healthcare is a not-for-profit organization that owns and operates hospitals in the Intermountain West. And um, We have 19 in this particular report. There are a few more hospitals than that, but they do not deliver babies, such as an orthopedic hospital or a children's hospital where no birthing occurs. And to our great advantage, we we have a single medical record for all of these hospitals and a single institutional review board. So those things um, facilitate our multi-hospital research. And we've used this database. Well, we, we use it constantly in trying to solve problems in neonatal hematology. And so that's, that's Intermountain Healthcare. That's the, the, the patient database that we use um, for this particular study.
1: And I would piggyback on that, is that with these being delivery centers, there there are often either the presence or absence of neonatal intensive care units. And so these delivery centers may be a level one, level two, or level three center. And so the importance of having a suspicion um, for these type of deliveries also probably goes into the outcomes of the neonates when they are born in an outborn facility and require transfer into a level three NICU.
2: We suspect, Yara, yeah, that our... Um experience here of finding uh, maybe 40% of our cases of fetal maternal hemorrhage are missed, we, we suspect that that's not unique to Intermountain Healthcare. I think uh, in order to make the proper diagnosis of fetal maternal hemorrhage, you have to think of it and you have to coordinate efforts with the obstetrician in order to get the proper testing drawn on the mother's blood. If you don't think of it or you don't communicate it or the obstetrician doesn't order the tests, you don't make the diagnosis. I think this is an important diagnosis to arrive at so that you have a proper treatment, a proper explanation for parents. And um, so I think um, I, I'm so happy that you selected this for the podcast because I believe that um, other centers have this problem as well, that we are all missing perhaps some of the most severe cases of fetal maternal hemorrhage, particularly those that die in the first day in our newborn intensive care units.
0: So for those of us who are listening who are not neonatal hematologists, what are other common causes of acute anemia? In, an, in a brand new baby? What other things do you think about?
2: Well, we actually did a recent paper on that subject, and uh, it's not in the uh, transfusion uh, article that we're specifically reviewing today, but in, in another work, we, we looked at 300,000 live births from our system. Well, first, we had to define what we wanted to call severe anemia at birth, and we used a definition of a hemoglobin or hematocrit at birth, within the first six hours after birth, below the first percentile reference interval. Now that that reference interval is necessary because a normal hemoglobin or hematocrit changes during gestation. So, So at 30 let me put it this way, at 22 weeks gestation, the earliest patient that we're likely to care for, the first percentile uh, for hemoglobin is about 8 grams per deciliter, 8. But if you're looking at a term baby that's 40 weeks, the first percentile is about 13 grams per deciliter. So you've got to have a normative chart to look at to know if your baby has severe anemia. So anyway, uh, we found 344 babies in our records that had severe anemia at birth. And as it turns out, the most common cause was fetal maternal hemorrhage. That was a surprise to us. Another surprise was that only half of the cases were recognized by the caregivers as being anemic on the first day. That's because... At that time, we did not really have um, a normative chart to look at. To you know, so a baby has a hemoglobin of ten—is that anemic or not? Well, it depends on the gestational age. And so we were surprised that in only half of our 344 cases was the anemia recognized by the caregivers during the first 24 hours. In the other half, it was not. Now, I I am quite certain that among those where it was never recognized, fetal maternal hemorrhage was likely the cause. So, uh, the other causes though here uh, that we we found are, as you might expect, um, hemorrhage of other kinds. They are generally easy to diagnose because you have an abruption or a previa or a cord rupture or a cord accident you have uh, hemolysis, hemolytic disease um, was the second most common. And then hypoproductive problems um, were, were rare. Of the 344, we only had five. Uh, these were um, diamond black fan uh, anemias and, and other congenital uh, genetic mutations that gave rise to hypoproductive anemia.
0: That's very interesting. So... With this study, what about your findings surprised you? Anything? Was this what you were expecting, or were you surprised that it was up to 40%?
1: I would say there were a few things that were surprising regarding this study. And to piggyback on what Dr. Christensen had mentioned before, um, by identifying that numerous cases of um, congenital anemia or acquired neonatal anemia um, had occurred within the Intermountain system, they had made a recommendation to attain... um, universal hemoglobin screening on cord gases that are sent. Um, And so for our cases in ACOG, which is the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, um, they've referred that all patients of C-sections with evidence of fetal distress, um, low five-minute APGAR scores, growth restrictions, non-reassured fetal heart tracings, uh, fever or multi-fetal gestation, that they should have cord gases sent, and we took it a step above that to recommend that we should have screening hemoglobin done on those cord gases. This was allowed, would allow for us to identify patients much earlier than um, based off of phenotype with pallor or having desaturations or clinical instability. Despite that recommendation within our system, we found that only 14 out of the 25 confirmed cases had local um, cord bloods hemoglobin sent and and confirmed, and that of the 21 of the 25 cases end up having a um, a measurable hemoglobin within the first 90 minutes. We suggest that anything beyond that two hours was potentially a delay in care and recognition for that anemia. I think this is all the more important for those 17 cases that we found that were probable as opposed to confirmed, because again, this highlights that without universal screening or recommendations for surveillance for this, that that a lot of these patients may miss it. They may end up um, having compromise related to their degree of anemia, whether it's congestive heart failure, uh, pulmonary hypertension that persists, or overall just symptomatic disease from their anemia um, and could go home um, severely anemic, which also has uh, long-term effects as well. So I think identifying that again, anemia could be missed, And that 40% of the cases that we felt that were significant enough that ultimately earned transfusion um, probably highlights how many cases are being missed within other hospital systems that are not as targeted towards looking for signs of severe neonatal anemia.
2: Yeah, I'll tell you one thing that surprised me. I agree with Nick in what he said about the lack of hemoglobins. That's so important to check those. Of our 17 babies who we feel had the missed diagnosis of severe fetal maternal hemorrhage, there were four cases where it was clear from the records that the clinicians thought about fetal maternal hemorrhage as a cause for the early anemia, and they actually ordered the testing in the mother. But there were problems with the testing or the results.
0: Can you discuss the use of the nucleated red blood cells to figure out how chronic or acute a fetal maternal hemorrhage is? I found that to be a really interesting piece of your paper.
2: Thank you. I will uh, lead off on that and then let uh, Nick add. Uh, One of the things that we noticed among the, uh, the first 25 babies where we had proof of fetal maternal hemorrhage, we had uh, five of them. When we looked at the um, flow cytometric studies of the mother's blood, five of them had what we'd calculate as being more than 100% of the fetal blood volume transfused into the mother's circulation. Now, that can't can't be. It would it would have to mean that that was a chronic hemorrhage, uh, because those babies were all born alive. They couldn't have lost one hundred percent of their blood volume. It had to be chronic. And in all of those, the nucleated red blood cell count was extremely high. On the other hand, there were some who had uh, normal nucleated red blood cell count. Now, I would say zero, but zero is the normal nucleated red blood cell count for older children and adults. You shouldn't expect to see one. If you look through the whole blood smear, you shouldn't find any nucleated red blood cells. But the exception is newborn babies where you can find a few on the day of birth and perhaps for a day or two later. And some of these babies just had the normal few number of nucleated red blood cell count. And as we examined the clinical situation, it looked like these were most likely acute hemorrhages that occurred during labor and delivery, whereas those that had evidence of chronicity that occurred over days or maybe even multiple days, Um, had very high nucleated red blood cell counts on the baby's first CBC. And so that fits with a a variety of other studies that we've done to ask the question, why do some babies have these extraordinarily high nucleated red blood cell counts at birth? Um, It's fairly common when there's severe hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy. Uh, at least half of the babies that we cool with therapeutic hypothermia have very high nucleated red blood cell counts. So we've been trying in other studies to figure out why. And the bottom line is it looks to us from animal studies as well as from human observations that with fetal hypoxia, if it's rather acute... Nucleated red blood cell count is normal because there's a delay. It takes like 24 hours between severe hypoxic episode in utero and and the first elevation in nucleated red blood cells in the fetal blood. Um, And so we, we use that to try to determine how many of these fetal maternal hemorrhages occurred Uh, acutely, and how many of them likely occurred more chronically over several days.
1: To add on to what Dr. Christensen said, um, as a neonatologist, I think this brings a nice distinction back into assessing the risk of hypovolemic shock for that neonate and how we would go forward managing it. Um, With acute onset and volume down, I think we would feel comfortable with volume transfusion, whether it's whole blood versus uh, component. Um, however, in setting of uh, chronic ongoing loss, um, we, we know that these patients are very sensitive to transfusion-related volume overload and the risk of congestive heart failure. And so have, being able to use that to help distinguish and guide how we would fluid resuscitate the patient, as well as the, um, in observance for risk of congestive heart failure, I, the nucleated red blood cells do provide a little bit more information to the neonatologists and the blood bank to do how we would manage transfusion and resuscitation in these patients.
0: You had talked about using low titer O whole blood for some of these babies. Can you describe your protocol for doing that and how it has gone? Because low titer O whole blood is a hot topic in transfusion medicine these days.
2: Nick, why don't you
1: take that one? Absolutely. So thank you for bringing this up. Um, uh, recently, I actually was a transplant from San Antonio where I was in active duty with the military. And my experience there in San Antonio, as well as Dr. Christensen's experience in the Intermountain system, um, we've been part of that renaissance uh, the transition from active duty use of low titer O negative uh, o- whole blood um, for resuscitation and trauma um, to the extensions for obstetrical postpartum hemorrhage to most recently um, pediatric hemorrhag- hemorrhagic shock and trauma. Um, with some studies that have been published out of uh, P- Pittsburgh. We found in um, both our colleagues as well as our local institutions that the use of um, whole blood in resuscitation has not only been safe, but also effective in um, of risk of mortality, morbidity, especially coagulation, volume of transfusion. Um, and we have decided to extend that into the neonatal population based off of knowing their sensitivity to volume resuscitation, risk of coagulation, and overall mortality. Uh, the Intermountain System went live with a whole blood resuscitation protocol um, in July of 2021, where we had the um, ability in the setting of emergency need for a release of low titer, O negative whole blood. That's been um identified as a unit for the neonatal intensive care unit to reduce the age of the product that can be um, activated by either electronic medical record or verbal request. Um, These products we've we've utilized now um, one patient as early as 25 weeks gestation, an extremely preterm infant um, with great results. The infant was transfused with 20 mLs per kilo. Um, over a four-hour period um, and demonstrated quick resolution of their symptomatic anemia, their coagulopathy, their overall vital signs were stabilized very briefly. Um, and additionally, we did screen for side effects that might be related to it with no evidence of homolysis whatsoever um, in this particular patient. Um, and we are highlighting that, that this is a case that may extend into the neonatal population because of the potential benefits that were highlighted across other trauma and uh, emergency resuscitation programs, as well as knowing that this is an area that I think we, we can take a lead on and have the opportunities to pr- demonstrate a safety profile as well as the access to a whole blood product um, for our neonates that are born in the most severe of anemic conditions requiring emergency resuscitation.
0: Have you or are you planning to make any changes to the practice in your institution based on these findings?
2: Uh, yes, um, I think we've we've started three three maybe four things. One is the um, reiteration of our previous plea to, Order a hemoglobin with every umbilical cord blood gas to hasten the diagnosis of fetal anemia if it's there. That that's one thing that we've done. Um, I think also education in some of our um, uh, educational groups at Intermountain Healthcare to have people consider the diagnosis of fetal-maternal hemorrhage whenever we have a neonate that's anemic without a good explanation. That's the second one. And then I think three, we still need more education on false negative maternal fetal, uh, maternal hemorrhage testing. These are the mothers that are group O and a fetus that's group A or B may give a false negative test and we can't, um, and we have to learn how to evaluate and deal with that. And then the last thing is, is what Nick brought up about, could this be a use for low titer, group O, cold stored blood? We have a, a case where we, we think it was extremely helpful very recently, um, but um, that may be another uh, another Use of of that that particular product in some of these babies with acute blood loss, whether it's fetal maternal hemorrhage or acute abruption or uh, cord rupture with acute blood loss, that new product may be uh, may have some benefits. So I'd say those are the four items that we have instituted on the basis of this this review.
0: So what's next for your group? What are you gonna investigate for your next thing?
2: Well, we're, we're still doing work on nucleated red blood cells. I think there's much to be learned uh, there. What does it mean when a baby has a high nucleated red blood cell count? They're not all from fetal maternal hemorrhage. They're from a variety of causes. How long does it take? What's, what are the stimuli? How long does the, the lag time have to uh, the, the limits of the lag time between hypoxia and nucleated red cells. We're interested in anemia at birth and uh, how we can improve our outcomes of babies who are anemic at birth, how we can improve the uh, uh, rapidness of the diagnosis and the accuracy of the, um, the, finding the pathogenesis. Really, if it's anything to do with hematologic problems of neonates, we're in.
0: That's perfect. All right. Well, thank you so much. And that's our show. Thank you to Dr. Carr and Dr. Christensen for joining us for a great discussion. This has been very informative. This is Yara Park for Transfusions Monthly Podcast. See you next time.